If you could roll all sins into one mass, if you could take murder and blasphemy and lust, adultery and fornication and everything that is vile and unite them all into one vast globe of black corruption, they would not equal even then the sin of unbelief. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. Uh, John chapter 4, I want to, on the screen, uh, start with a different verse. So if you're taking note, we're going to start with a different verse, and you'll understand why we're going to start with this uh, verse as we go into our text today. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and the ESV says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is, according to the writer of Hebrews, impossible. Will you say that with me? Impossible. Just got to make sure you're awake today. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And so I want to open this text this morning with just a simple question that we'll continue to kind of come back to, but that's this. What is your basis for faith. Maybe that question doesn't make sense, so let me ask it this way. What is your basis for believing something? Uh, is it based on maybe hearing? So if I were to say, there's a place in uh, France called Paris, Paris, and, uh, and it's a wonderful place, and uh, when you go there, you've got to stop at the Eiffel Tower. It's this pyramid kind of shaped tall tower and uh, everyone in Paris takes pictures of it, and uh, you've got to go, Paris has some great food and some okay people, but you've got to see the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower is where you've got to go. Uh, would you believe me that, that that place exists? Or maybe you would believe that it exists because I've never been there, but maybe you would believe the testimony of someone who has been there. Uh, one of our own shoreliners, Josh Fleming, who plays bass, there's a picture of him with it in the background, so you know Based on his experience, oh, well, it must be true based on Josh's uh, picture. And that is definitely model status, Josh. Uh, what is your basis for believing something? Maybe it's seeing a picture, but I got to tell you, there's Photoshop. So that could be fake. That could be a fake photo. I don't know if Josh actually went. I need to see a passport. Maybe your basis for faith is just hearing someone tell you something. So you believe it. Is your faith based on seeing or hearing or is it maybe you experienced it? So though the Bible says something that, that contradicts your experience, you go, well, I don't know because I did experience that. I know the Bible doesn't mention that, but I had this happen to me, so it must be true because I experienced it. Or maybe because you had a strong feeling about something, that because I really feel this way about that guy, that guy's not trustworthy. I just feel off about him. Well, is that true? What is the basis for believing something? Uh, there's a website I, I reference often. It's called Snopes.com, and it's basically a website that helps dispel urban myths. So if you hear an internet news story and you're curious, is this true? Did this really happen? Uh, you go on Snopes.com and any of these viral news stories on the internet, it kind of uh, will tell you, yes, that's true, no, that's not true, or it's a mixture of the truth. It's kind of Maybe half and half. And so lately I've been seeing some of you guys, you're, you're posting these questions on Facebook. So literally, this, these are three things that people in our church have asked or wondered. 
based on your social media. And I'm not a troll, okay? I don't go and watch everyone on Facebook and go, oh, let me take note, that's gonna be a next week's sermon, okay? I don't, I don't do that. But these, you guys have talked about these three things. First of all, is there an algorithm on Facebook that only allows me to see 26 of my friends? Okay, that's a, that's a news story that's been going around. There's a news story this week that someone posted that says Mars, the planet, is going to be dangerously close to the, to, the, uh, to the Earth, and this could cause some major concerns. Years ago, a few years ago, I saw someone from Shoreline post this. They said, hey, I think Mr. Rogers wears those long um, sweaters to cover up his tattoos because he was uh, in the Marine Corps. <laughs> Okay, the, the answer to all of those questions, those three, no, no, those are not true. Okay, those are fake. Those are false. Uh, Mr. Rogers did not have tattoos. Okay, so for many of us, we don't believe something until we see it. I've got to see it. I'm not going to believe this news story until I see it on Snopes. I want to see the proof. I want to see the evidence. It's not just enough to hear it. I want to see it. But listen, the danger, gang, is that faith does not come by seeing. Can I get an Amen. Faith does not come by seeing the proof, seeing the evidence, seeing uh, the signs. Faith, the Scripture tells us, comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans chapter 10. So what is your basis for believing something? Today, I'm sure in this room or listening uh, to this, there is someone who is a skeptic. And I am glad you're here or I'm glad you're listening. I welcome the skeptic. And so maybe you're here and you're just like, I don't really believe, I'm not really sure. So if I were to tell you this morning, hey, Jesus changes lives, would you take it on my word? Would you take it on the authority of me as a pastor? Or would you say, to believe that Jesus heals or Jesus saves or Jesus, Jesus changes lives, I need to see it in your life first. And if I see it in your life, then maybe I'll believe. Would you need to see medical records to believe that Jesus can still heal people? What is the basis for your faith? And so in the text that we're going to study this morning that Mackenzie just read, we're going to see three types of people. And we're going to see how each one of these place their faith differently. One group is willing to believe just based on someone else's testimony. And that's commendable. That's not bad. The second group, uh, they're not willing to believe unless they really see the signs and the wonders. And that's not commendable. But then there's a third group, represented by the man we're going to read, the nobleman, and he's willing to place his faith just in the word, just in what Jesus says. He's willing to believe based on the word. And we're going to see that is where uh, we, the basis through which we place our faith. And so what we're going to see today is a probing question, pointing the finger back at you, back at me. Uh, and this is the question. Do you need a witness to believe? Do you need wonders to believe? Or do you just need the word of God to believe? So as we open up this text, um, I really like what N.T. Wright, the theologian, says about um, this passage. This is a, a really fascinating um, uh, analogy. He says this. He says, just picture a town, this old ancient village with lots of kind of historical landmarks, and I just want you to picture uh, that people are coming into this town to find those landmarks, and, and they're beautiful historical um, kind of spots that you would take a picture of. Uh, but see, there's a problem in the town. There's traffic. Why? Because the visitors to the town don't know where the landmarks are located. So the town planning commission comes together, and the town planner says, okay, I've got an idea. Let's put up signs throughout the village that point people that are new to the village to those landmarks. And so the way N.T. Wright explains it is that they decide, because the village is kind of an, um, 
it's, it's antiquity, it's kind of old, uh, it's historical. They want to make the signs very nice to, to keep in line with the um, community. So they build these signs, they put them up. The next day, they can't believe what happened. The traffic is 10 times worse. Why? Because at all of the places where the signs were located, there's a traffic bottleneck. And they couldn't believe they get to the location and the people are out of their cars and they're snapping photos, taking selfies in front of the signs that point to the landmarks, not to the landmarks themselves. And N.T. Wright says that is what happens with a lot of us. We look at the signs and not the centerpiece. We look at the miracle, but not um, the, the, the thing that they're pointing to, the sign that it's pointing to. He says the word has become flesh, but what if we admire the flesh and forget about the word? Wow. So what we're going to do is we're going to study this section of Scripture. And uh, if you look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 39, we are in a section of Scripture that follows up what happened um, when we read last week with the woman at the well in Samaria. Uh, What's happening here is she's placed her faith in Jesus as Messiah. Okay, This is Samaria, the central region between Galilee to the north, Judea to the south, the Samaritan, um, the Samaria area, the Jews would avoid, okay? And so in the south in Judea, Jesus has had quite a great impact. Remember, he went into the temple uh, and he overturned the, the tables of the money changers and he drove out those who were exchanging money. He said, this shall be called a house of prayer. Remember, he made the whip. So that happened. He uh, ministers to Nicodemus, this religious man. He says, hey, it's not about religion. It's about being born again. So you remember that impact? Um, Then his disciples begin baptizing, and lots of people begin to get baptized. And the Pharisees hear about it, and so he leaves to go back to Judea, uh, or Galilee, rather, up north. And instead of going the normal route, he goes to, uh, which which you would go two days outside across the Jordan through Perea, and then back into Galilee. You take two days to avoid the Samaritans, because they didn't like the Samaritans as Jews. Instead of that, we read last week, Jesus uh, said he needed to go. He He must needs go up through Samaria. The reason is because the fields were white for harvest there. You guys remember this last week? Who was here last week? You remember what we're talking about? Okay, yes. So last week we learned how Jesus went to the well in Sakaar in Samaria. He meets this sketchy Samaritan woman with a checkered past, and he begins to ask her for a drink, and he talks about how I am living water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. And we learn how um, all these barriers that held her back from knowing Jesus, remember, he broke through those barriers to um, show her what it looked like to live eternally. Remember what happened? She didn't keep drinking from that water. Remember, she dumped her water pot and she pursues Jesus. So she goes back into the village. So we pick it up in verse 39. Here's the result of her testimony. Okay, this is where we're going to start. And here's how I want to outline this text today. If you're taking note, we're going to see again three types of faith. So we're going to see faith from hearing the testimony of the woman. And that's not bad. It's not bad to believe by hearing someone's testimony. That's good. But then the second one we don't want to be, faith from seeing signs and wonders. I'm not going to believe unless I see it. And then we're going to see the faith of this nobleman who just receives the word. And that's how we're going to end today, is uh, that you and I would be challenged to just receive the word. Okay? Are you guys good today? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you guys are all right. Everyone give me a thumbs up if you're good today. All right, cool. All right, just making sure. Look at uh, verse 39. Let's look at the faith from hearing a testimony of this woman. What impact does she have? Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Why? Because of the word of the woman who testified. And here was her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. A little bit of an exaggeration, but she's never met a man who 
uh, could, in that kind of soul uh, intimacy, um, speak to uh, truth to her and, uh, and understand her. And so she's overcome by this. And so she gives him this testimony, verse 40, when the, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And notice this, he stayed there two days. And I love verse 41, many more believed. Why? Because of his own word. Please don't miss this. Many Samaritans believed because of the woman's word, the woman's testimony. Okay? They saw her life, and they said, yeah, she's definitely different. We know this woman. She's got a bad reputation. She's different. And so because of her testimony, their lives um, were drawn closer to Jesus. But it says many more believe because they heard from the word themselves, the logos. They heard from Jesus. So therein is a great lesson, okay? Uh, church, in the world that God has stewarded to us to live in and among, we need to be like the Samaritan woman. We need to be those who are witnesses of what Jesus has done in our life. Uh, so what does a witness do? A witness in a court of law, simply testifies to what they've seen and heard. As a witness, you're not there to create anything. You're there just to communicate what's already happened. Does that make sense? We're not here to recreate, make up some new way of looking at the gospel. We just need to tell the gospel. We need to just communicate. Here's what Jesus has done. I don't need to be creative in that. I just need to communicate it clearly. In fact, if a witness brings up some new details that aren't true, just to make it more exciting in court, they're now a false witness, right? So we're to be a true witness. Just simply reiterate, communicate, retell, recount what Christ has done in our life. We don't need to be amazing. We just need to be accurate. Amen? Just be accurate. Uh, when people who don't know Jesus are around us, listen, we want them to say, I have seen and heard what you've said about Jesus changing your life, and I want to know Jesus now because of that. That's what we want. What we don't want is for people to say, yeah, I've seen, like, I've seen your life, so I really don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They say that uh, the, the two reasons people go to church, the number, there's only two, uh, it's because, number one, they know a Christian. And so they know a Christian, and the Christian invites them, and they, they love how that Christian has been living the gospel in front of them, and they're attracted to the Lord through that. It's because they knew a Christian. The second reason people don't go to church, okay, the reason they don't go to church is because they knew a Christian. <laughs> because they saw someone who wasn't living the way we're supposed to live. Jesus says that we're salt and light. Uh, we were at a UTC mall last night with friends. We were having dinner at a restaurant, and um, one of the things, we, we tried to be funny, and we asked the waiter for fancy sauce. We said, hey, waiter, can we have fancy sauce? Just to see what he would say. And he brought some. We, there's not even a thing that exists called fancy sauce, but he brought fancy sauce out to us, whatever it was, and it was, it was kind of fancy. It was good. He brings this out, and it, it dawned on me as we're dipping our fries in that fancy sauce, like, what if we were asking for more salt? Could you add a little more salt? And he was mad that we were kind of just having fun with the fancy thing. So he takes my dish back and takes the salt container, takes the top, and just dumps the entire salt container onto my dinner. Uh, and he brings it back. Here you go. That, that, would be, that would be repulsive, right? That would taste disgusting because there's too much salt. It, it ruins it. Salt is supposed to bring out the flavor and, and whet my appetite for thirst, right? Now, I'm not supposed to overdo it. Uh, in like manner, light. Uh, light in a dark room, just a little bit of light. Um, will cause everything in the room to be drawn to it. There's a little bit of light. I want to know more about what this light is. It's the revelation. It's truth. I want to see that. But we don't walk into a room and flip the light on and put a spotlight, right, on someone. That's repulsive. That can be obnoxious. And so Jesus says, you are salt. You are light. And we want the world to 
not be repulsed by our lives, but attracted to Jesus through our lives. So I think that's pretty awesome that that happens with this woman. But secondly, notice that these men, it says that they urged uh, Jesus in verse 40. They urged him to stay with them. There was a sense of urgency uh, in the gospel proclamation. They liked what they heard about the woman, but they wanted to hear from Jesus themselves. There were questions of the soul that the woman couldn't answer simply with her testimony. They needed to come to Jesus to answer those questions for them. And likewise, this morning, uh, there may be some of you here or listening, and you have many questions. Uh, and and I, I can sit here and tell you like, how much Jesus has changed my life and the lives of those in our, in our church, but uh, I can give you a word about Jesus, but there's nothing like actually listening to his own word, listening to the scriptures. And so if that's you here today, uh, if you're like, I, I want to know more about who Jesus is, I want to challenge you to investigate who Christ is uh, in the scripture, to start investigating the claims of Christ. Seek Jesus in the scriptures and allow him to speak to you through his word. And here's what John, the same writer of this gospel, said in 1 John 5. In verse 9, he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So as Christ followers, you and I have the opportunity to be like the Samaritan woman and to share our testimony with a world full of urgent Samaritans. We have that opportunity. They see our lives and they wonder. They hear our testimonies and the word of God eventually themselves. So faith from a testimony is not bad. Uh, but if you look at verse 41, many more believed because they heard from Jesus themselves. Okay? And notice what they say about it. Uh, notice that they say in verse 42, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, this is fascinating because that phrase, the Savior of the world, that was only used of the Roman emperor. So you would call the emperor, and it's kind of, you know, it's not true, but they would say he's the Savior of the world. He's the, the Savior. He's the, the Christ, so to speak. And, and so Jesus here by the Samaritan saying that, this is fascinating. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior, uh, not just of his own people, but all who would believe, even the, the outcast Samaritans, even you and me. Jesus is the Savior of the world. But see, what we learn early on in the Gospel of John, and we'll continue to see this throughout our study of John's Gospel, is that though Jesus did come to his own, and he is the Savior of the Jews and of the world, his own people rejected him. His own people didn't want to receive what Jesus had to say. And so Jesus is about to leave Samaria and go back into Galilee. And the kind of the foreshadowing question I want to ask us is what, uh, how are they going to receive Jesus in Galilee? How are they going to receive him? See, this is how they've been receiving him. Look back on the screen uh, a little bit, rewind to John chapter 1. This is what happened back in John chapter uh, 1. Uh, it says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so he came to his own, they rejected him. Then we go to John chapter 2 on the screen, verses 23 through 25. Remember this, a, a few months ago? When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Why did they believe? They saw. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in 
man. Why did they believe? Because they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew their heart motivation was just to see him do something, and that's why they would believe. It wasn't true faith. Uh, Later, after the story we're reading today in John chapter 6, this is a little bit of a a spoiler alert, but John chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And they weren't following him because of what he said, but because of what he did. They didn't want salvation. Listen, they wanted a sensation. Later in John chapter 7, we even see Jesus' family, his brothers, and they're urging him to go. And they're, they're saying, hey, go into Jerusalem, go into the feast of booths and show your glory. And they didn't say that because they believed in him. But as you look on the screen, John chapter 7, uh, verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This, these are his brothers. And then verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. So his group of brothers, younger than him, born to Joseph and Mary, they say, hey, you know, if you're going to do these, we know you can do miracles, so this is how you're going to kind of start your marketing campaign, go to Jerusalem, and this will really promote who you are. But they didn't believe in him. If you really want people to believe, stop talking to them and show them. I think it's interesting, they didn't even believe at this moment until after the resurrection, uh, we know his half-brother Jude and his half-brother James uh, both, uh, after the resurrection, placed their faith in Jesus and they penned the book of James, the book of Jude, in the New Testament. So they did become believers, but at this point in John chapter 7, they don't believe. Jesus came to his own, even his own family didn't receive him, didn't believe him. They wanted to see the signs with their eyes, the miracles. They wanted the flesh, but not the word. And so after two successfully, uh, wildly successful days in Sychar, in Samaria, Jesus is about to leave and go back north into Galilee. So let's see the second group uh, that has faith from seeing the signs and wonders. Look at verse 43. It says, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. Now, wait a minute. Something strange is happening here at first glance. Okay, verse, look at it with me again. Verse 44 uh, says that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But then it says right after that, he came to Galilee and the Galileans received him. So what is the truth here? Like, if he's not being honored, why are they happy to see him? Isn't that honorable to be gladly receiving him? What's happening here? Here's how I want to illustrate this so you understand How many grandparents do we have in here today? Be proud. You are a grandparent. I heard it's better than having kids, right? Is that right? They're not here today, so you can admit it, all right? Is it better to be a grandparent? Is it? All right. One of you agrees. Okay, so some some grandparents have said, you know, I get no respect from my grandkids. Um, But when I show up to visit, they're super excited to see grandpa and grandma. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. I get no respect for my grandkids, and when I show up, they're happy to see me. Sounds like a contradiction until you realize why they're happy to see you. Everyone knows grandpa and grandma equals presence. That's why they're happy to see you, because you represent presence. That's why. Be a grandfather, they said. It'll be fun, they said. Yeah, I am looking forward to it, actually. 
in uh, 45 years when my children have their own kids. Okay? Similar idea here. Okay, stay with me. This is Galilee. It's Cana in Galilee. Remember what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee? John tells us in the text, this is where the water was made wine at the wedding. Okay, so, so just picture the type of reception you're going to have as Jesus coming back to that place. The story of the water turned into wine went viral. Everyone knew about it. So here's Jesus. Suddenly he's getting wedding invitation here, wedding invitation there. He's walking down the street. People are bringing goblets of water to him. Can you help me out? It's been a long weekend. Help a brother out. All right, this is the reception he would have had. I want to see more miracles. I want to see more signs. And so there's no honor in his hometown because they're wanting something from him with the wrong motives. Uh, look at verse 45. They received him having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem. Okay? The hundreds of thousands of Galileans that had made their way to that annual pilgrimage, they came into Jerusalem and they saw him doing that work in the temple. And, and then they saw the baptisms. Then they, they remembered the signs. So they're going, could he do something better than that? And so they're pressing in around him. But he's not receiving true honor. I tweeted this week this on Twitter. I said, Jesus fills the water pots of Galilee with wine and the people come running for more miracles. Jesus shows the Samaritans their water pots are empty and they come running for more of Jesus. This morning, who are you running to? Are you running to a Jesus that's the miracle worker that has something for you? And you're coming for a handout or a hookup? I'm here for something at church. I want to get something from Jesus today. Or are you coming saying, you know, Jesus is enough our series, Jesus is, you just feel that, and he's enough today. I just want more of Jesus. I want to leave today not with full hands, but with a full heart. I want to know who Christ is and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's enough for me. If I come and get nothing out of the day, I want more of Jesus, and that's sufficient for me. Why does a prophet, according to Jesus, receive no honor in his hometown? Well, I think primarily the reason is because there's familiarity. They're familiar, and I'm quoting that, familiar with the prophet. The people of Jesus' hometown near Cana in Nazareth remember him. But see, the irony is that it's not really familiarity, it's perceived familiarity. You know what I mean by that? It's perceived. Oh, we, it's like we perceive that we're familiar with him. They may say this, oh, we Nazarenes, <laughs> we, know, we know Jesus of Nazareth. Have you heard he's of Nazareth after all? Oh, we know Jesus. Uh, the son of God? No, he's the carpenter's son. He's from above? No, he's from that property right there. Uh, we know him. He grew up with our kids. This is, this is Jesus of now. He's one of us. And so there's that perceived familiarity, but they actually don't really know who Jesus truly is. Uh, he's not God. He's not a prophet. He's just a good teacher. He's a good rabbi. He's a good friend. And listen, church, I fear that many of us today have the same false perception. Maybe even you here today. You would say, yeah, I'm familiar with Jesus. I know who he is. I know all about him. I grew up in Sunday school. I know who he is. He's wearing the robe. He's got the long hair. He's got the sandals. He's got blue eyes and a British accent. I know who Jesus is. I grew up hearing the stories. I saw the passion of the Christ. And there's Jim Caviezel. And I know who Jesus is. And yet, even with that knowledge and familiarity in your own heart, in your own life, there's a lack of honor. You mock Jesus. You Make fun of Jesus. You trivialize Jesus. You marginalize Jesus. You minimize Jesus. You dismiss Jesus. He's no more relevant to your life today than what's happening in South America. You're like, I'm kind of aware of what's happening, but it's not impacting your life 
today in your seat. If you're here this morning and you believe you know Jesus and yet there's a dishonor, your familiarity with him is misperception. You don't actually know who Jesus is at all. And this speaks less about who Jesus is and more about who you are. You can't be familiar with who Jesus is and simultaneously dishonor him. The problem is not that he's dishonorable. The problem is that you don't understand who he really is. And so that's what happens. These people want to see the miracle. They want to see the handout, some type. And that's not going to go away. We're going to see that throughout the, the study of the Gospel of John. And so look at verse 46. Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Just for reference, if you're taking note, Capernaum's about 17 to 20 miles away. It would take you about four or five hours to walk quickly, or for those of you who run 5Ks, it would take about three and a half, four or five hours to get there, okay? <clears throat> when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, this nobleman went to him and implored him to come down to Capernaum, it's literally downhill, and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, have your attention. What's happening here? Okay, we're told Jesus arrives in Cana of Galilee, and a certain nobleman hears that Jesus is back. And so he makes that 20-mile trek, so to speak, uphill, uh, and he leaves his son with the servants. His son is sick at the, at the edge of death, and he goes to find Jesus. He finds him, and then he pleads with him to come back. Come back with me, Jesus. Make this trip with me, and we're going to have you uh, lay hands on my son, come in the room, and, and heal my son. Okay? Now, if you look at verse 46, the word for nobleman, I want you to circle that word. On the screen, we'll tell you what it means. It's the Greek word basilikos, and it means the king's man. It has nothing to do with the movie Kingsman, okay? the king's man. This is a royal official, a person who had prestigious rank. Uh, many scholars believe that this man, the nobleman, was one of Herod's trusted officers. Uh, now, just, to, just so you know, um, in studying this, this story sounds very similar to the centurion uh, of Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. Remember, his servant was sick, and so he says, just, you know, I'm under authority, just speak the word. It sounds similar, but there's a lot of differences. So um, scholars believe, and I'm included, um, that it's a different story, because there's too many differences. Uh, two different miracles. So um, here is a man. I want you to think about what it would have been like to be this nobleman, the king's man. He's risen up over many years in the ranks of the military, and he's now known, as you look at him, on the outside, this guy is known for power, prestige, prominence. He's the man. He is the king's man. He is above all of us. He's at the top of the world. But listen, his rank means nothing to him now. There's no assurance or hope to hold up our rank and say, yeah, this is, this is great. Look who I am. Why? Because his son's life is at stake. He may have gained the entire world and be standing at the top of it, but now the weight of the world is crushing him, and he feels like he's on the bottom of it. And some of you understand that desperation this morning. You understand that, that fear and that, that, that hopelessness and that anxiety that comes from losing a child or having your, your son or your daughter at death's door. This man may have had a status that puts him up here, but because of the weight of his son's health, he's about to be crushed by losing the most important person to him, 
Notice that the nobleman doesn't go to Herod. He goes to Jesus, the very source of life. He didn't need Jesus when life was great, but now he needs Jesus when his life falls apart. And I found that that tends to be true. Infirmity, not prosperity, uh, will often lead us to Jesus. It's rare that someone gets a big raise at work and says, well, thank you, Lord, because of that, I'm gonna give my life to you. It's usually when we're in the middle of a traumatic experience that we realize, because we rarely realize this, but we realize our need for salvation. And so this man came and it says that he implored Jesus. The word uh, can be translated ask or inquire or question or beg or even pray to. His prayer request is this, Jesus, come with me. Make the 20-mile trek with me and come into the room and heal my son. I know what you can do. I've seen what you can do. I've heard what you can do. Now come with me and do it. And now notice what Jesus says to him in verse 48 again. Notice what Jesus' response is. Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. <laughs> wow, whoa. Now at first glance, it seems like Jesus is being kind of rude. Like he's pushing this man away. But listen, like many people whom Jesus interacted with, he's actually testing his faith. Uh, he's lumping him together with the group of Galileans who only would believe if they could see. And he's like, are you one of those guys? Will you believe Mr. King's man, will you only believe if you see? Or would you believe if you just heard my word? If all I said was my word to you, would you believe that? He's pressing this man's faith into action. And so what I want to point out real quick is that this translation in verse 48 um, is, is a very good translation. Unless you people. Okay, when Jesus says you, he's not saying to this nobleman directly you. It's third person plural. You people is a good translation. He's not referring to Herod's people, or military people, or people of the city of Capernaum, where the man's from. Uh, no, he's speaking about Galileans in general. The Samaritans believe on a testimony. That's commendable, but the Galileans would not believe unless they saw. And he's asking, are you one of them? And so listen, this is an important understanding that unless you see many of us this morning also would fall into that camp. Maybe we are part of the Galilean unbelieving group where we have to see something or we won't believe it. Is that you here this morning? Does that describe you? Would Jesus say, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe? See, there's a distinction between believing based on what we hear, uh, Jesus' words, and based on what we see. And that that tension, that distinction comes throughout the Gospel of John. It reaches a climax in John chapter 20. Look on the screen um, with me real quick. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 26. Okay. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, now you know why they called him Thomas, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Remember that? This is after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, <laughs> This is you, I know it, this is me, we are this guy. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Wow. What is the name? Um, his name's Didymus, his name's Thomas, but what do we call Thomas? What do we call that poor sap with an adjective? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas, poor guy. We're going to get to heaven one day. This is going to be so awkward. We're going to get to heaven one day, and we're going to go, hey, hey where's Thomas? And there's going to be a guy who says, uh, maybe it's Peter at the gate. Probably not. 
But, but, but the person's going to say, oh, well, there's a lot of Thomases here. Thomas who? And, uh, Thomas Jefferson? And we're going to go, no, not Thomas Jefferson. He's not here. He's a deist, so we know he's not here. And not Thomas Jefferson. And he's going to go, Thomas Aquinas? And we're going to go, who? Uh, theologians know who he is. No, um, uh, no, 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 no. The famous Thomas. Where's Thomas? He's going to go, I got enough Thomas the Tank Engine? I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. Thomas the bagel guy? Are we talking about Tom Bagels? I mean, I don't know who you're referring to. And what are we going to say? No, 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 no. Doubting Thomas, right? Poor guy. He's known throughout all of eternity as the doubter. Like, poor guy. Poor guy. I'm sorry, Tom. I'm really sorry. But notice, he doesn't want to believe unless he sees Jesus. Then he does see Jesus. John chapter 20. Look at this. 29. Have you, this is Jesus. Have you believed because you've seen? And then he, he pronounces a blessing for you and I. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. It is so important that we uh, don't just look for signs and wonders, but we look to who they point to. N.T. Wright says this, I love this. Genuine faith is always seeking the word hidden in the flesh, not using the word simply as a way of getting at the flesh. See, church, we're talking about faith today. But see, the deeper issue here is the Thomas syndrome. The Thomas syndrome. What is that? Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, I don't like the term doubting Thomas because the word doubt is kind of wimpy. It's kind of subtle. It's kind of tame. Right? Hey, do you think the Bucks are going to make the Super Bowl this year? I doubt it. Right? I doubt it. It's, it's a word we use. It's kind of, it's kind of you know, it's kind of tame. Uh, we doubt we'll make it to work if we're in our early 20s if we play one more hour of Fortnite in the morning. We doubt we'll make it to work. Husbands, uh, we doubt our wife will find out we ate the last brownie and then we're wrong to our own detriment and death, right? Doubt is a word that we use for spiritual things and it sounds kind of tame, almost bearable. Uh, yeah, I doubt my salvation sometimes. Yeah, I kind of have doubts about it. I have doubts about Christianity. Uh, I've even heard some pastors say, oh, you know, it's good to have healthy doubt in our faith. With, with, in our walk with God. No, see, I think doubt is a wimpy, it's a dumb word. I'd like to change doubting Thomas to unbelieving Thomas. That's a little heavier, isn't it? Poor guy. Can you imagine saying like, yeah, I'm struggling with some unbelief in my walk with Jesus. Yeah, you know, I have, my, I have some unbelief about Christianity. It's a heavier word, but that's what Thomas is actually doing. It's unbelief. And we shouldn't have any unbelief creep into our walk with Jesus where we're like those outside of the camp of Israel and we listen to the, the testimony of the 10 unbelieving spies and we don't enter into the fullness of what God has for us. Spurgeon said this about unbelief. If you could roll all sins into one mass, if you could take murder and blasphemy and lust, adultery and fornication and everything that is vile and unite them all into one vast globe of black corruption, they would not equal even the, then the sin of unbelief. This is the monarch sin, the quintessence of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It is the A1 sin, the masterpieces of Satan, the chief work of the devil." Church, it's not that men cannot believe, it's that they won't believe. They won't believe unless they see some type of miracle. And they're placing their faith in the wrong object. Jesus says in verse 46, unless you people see, you will by no means believe. By no means. Now, while we're on this topic, I want to cover, before we close with the last point, three areas we place our faith in that are bad. 
So if you're taking note, would you jot these down or take your phone out and snap a photo of this? Three things you don't place your faith in, okay? This is what we don't place our faith in, not what we do, okay? The first one is emotion, emotion. Often, we can be tempted to trust our feelings rather than placing our faith in God. And we can actually reduce our faith simply to an emotional response. So some days, man, I feel saved. And other days, I don't feel saved. Is salvation a feeling? It was said of Martin Luther that he was asked by the devil if he felt his sins were forgiven. Here was his response. Uh, No, no, I don't feel that they are forgiven, but I know they are because God says so in his word. Uh, Paul did not say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will feel saved, but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No one here this morning can feel that your sins are forgiven. When I go to a Sam's Club or BJ's, or if you're really fancy, Costco, <clears throat> when I walk through the line at the end, there's a guy at the door or a gal at the door, and they, they don't say this to me. They don't say, do you feel that your bulk groceries are paid for, including your 10-gallon tub of mustard? Do you feel that they were paid for? Uh, I would say, no, I don't feel that my... Um, that that my bill was paid. I know from this receipt that it was paid. And you can verify by checking it off. And you know what I feel? I feel happy because it's paid for. See the difference? I don't approach the Lord and say, well, I feel like I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And then thus, my feeling is produced from joy, knowing that my salvation is rooted in Christ and not in me. And so I can walk away happy and joyful. And the feeling I experience is an overflow of the truth rooted in the doctrinal truth of the gospel. Does that make sense? Uh, So someone attributed this poem to Martin Luther. I don't think it was. I think they took some of his writings and tweaked it uh, because the German to English would not um, rhyme this well. But look at this. I love this. If it was him, this is awesome. For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token There is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. We're not to trust uh, trust our emotions, church. We're not Jedi. We don't stretch out with our feelings, okay, with our emotions. We don't trust our feelings. That's not biblical. It's not faith. Amen? That was half-hearted. Someone's like, I kind of like my feelings. All right, well, let me hurt your feelings some more. Number two, we don't trust, we don't place our faith in number two, education. Okay? We may be tempted this morning to place our faith in our intellectual prowess or our academic credentials. Now, the scripture clearly denounces this mindset in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm not going to read it to you, but on the screen, Paul says, where, where are the wise? Uh, where, where are they? Uh, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And he goes on to say, God has chosen the fools to confound the wise, so that he might be glorified. Now, listen to me very carefully. That does not mean we don't pursue higher education. Uh, We should always be reading, always be seeking to be lifelong learners. And so if you're here today and you say, I'm a Christ follower, but you're not reading the Bible, you're not reading uh, stuff to grow in your faith, you're not trying to grow in your faith, guess what? Um, You're lazy and you're in sin. And you need to stop being lazy and stop sinning. You need to grow in your walk with Jesus. You might say, I'm not a reader. Okay, great. They make these things called audiobooks, so you don't have to read. You can just listen. And guess what? On your commute to work, they're fantastic. You're like, I work five minutes. Well, take your lunch break and read or listen. Do something. 
Okay? It's not wrong to be educated. It's wrong to place our faith in our education. See the difference? Well, I'm trusting in my credentials. I'm trusting in my doctrinal understanding of theology. I'm placing my faith in my system or my seminary instead of in the Word of God. I think we need to be careful. I look at my own education. I say, I don't have the greatest education, but to give God glory, He chose me as a fool and has challenged me and called me to grow in my knowledge of Jesus and His Word. And Peter even tells us that in 2 Peter 1. Add to your faith knowledge. And so I encourage you not to place your faith in education, but become educated. Thirdly, this is what we don't place our faith in. Number three, experiences. This is perhaps the most subtle and the most dangerous thing that we place our faith in. Often we think because I've experienced something in youth group as a child, at camp, uh, or a few years ago, that it's now validated. Did you guys know that Mormons actually encourage people that are new to Mormonism, the Church of Latter-day Saints? They're the young guys that their tag says elder, but they're like 18, and, uh, and they wear the short... Um, shirts with the ties and they ride bikes and uh, they go around. Did you know that the Mormons actually tell new converts, um, you're going to pray and ask for a burning in your bosom, a burning in your heart. And if, if, if you, if, if, you know, ask if the Book of Mormon is true and you'll feel this burning inside of you. They want you to validate the truth based on an experience. Now we might scoff at that, but too many Christians are also looking for an experience when they walk into church gathering. They would rather see the hand of God than see the face of God in Christ. Many of us want to leave even today with more of an experience than Jesus. You might say, oh, I felt the presence of God this morning. Or, and that church is dead. I wasn't feeling anything during worship. But worship's not about feeling something, experiencing something. It's about giving glory and honor and recognition to God. So listen, never be tempted into thinking that a worship song or a motivational teaching or goosebumps that you got, or a strong impression is thus the basis for belief. Like the signs, these may accompany the work of the Holy Spirit, but they're not the centerpiece. Jesus is the centerpiece. I love what David Gusick says. Signs and wonders from God are obviously good things, but they should not form the foundation of our faith. We should not depend on them to prove God to us. In themselves, signs and wonders cannot change the heart. And here's an example. Israel saw incredible signs at Mount Sinai and even heard the very voice of God. Yet a short time later, they worshiped a golden calf. So if it's not about eyewitnesses, experiences, education, or emotion, what do we place our faith in? What do we walk away trusting in then? Let's look at the last section of our our text and see what the nobleman does after Jesus kind of puts him off a little. Look at verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. Wow. Notice how he calls Jesus, sir, respectfully. And then he continues to request. His his request is, hey, come. Come to Capernaum. Downhill. But Jesus says, no, just go your way. Your son lives. In other words, I don't need to be there with him. I have the power to heal even when there's distance between us. In a word, Jesus commands the nobleman to return home and find that his son has been healed. And so the man in this moment has a choice. He doesn't drag Jesus with him. He has a choice to either believe Jesus at his word or to forfeit Jesus' help. J. Oswald Sanders on the screen says, he had been 
laboring under two misapprehensions. First, that Jesus would have to travel to Capernaum to heal his son. And second, that death was beyond the scope of Christ's power. But now his faith overleaped both barriers. So what does the man do? What does he do? Look at the rest of verse 50. So the man, would you say it with me? Believed. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Verse 54 wraps up the chapter and says, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. I don't know, guys, did you miss the huge detail of the story? When Mackenzie read it earlier, did you catch it? Did you catch it now? Maybe you missed it. Look back at it with me. Jesus heals the boy without showing up in the same room, the same house, the same city. He pronounces the healing from Cana. The boy's healed in an instant. Whatever he was uh, suffering from that was bringing him to the brink of death was immediately reversed, even at the cellular level, and he was instantly restored to full health. And the servants that were caring for him noticed, oh, the fever broke, or, or wow, immediately he's suddenly better in this exact hour. Did you notice when it happened, though? Look, look back. You missed this, guys. I missed it when I first read it. Verse 52, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour. Now, if you're keeping track with me, remember the first hour of the Jewish day is 6 a.m.? So quick math, what would the seventh hour be if that's hour number one? Good, 1 p.m. But notice it's yesterday. Wait a minute, hold on. Yesterday? He talks to Jesus, and now this is the next day. I love this, guys. Don't miss this. The, the man placed his faith in Christ and stayed the night. He didn't rush the four. It would have been four or five hours to run home. So he's talking to Jesus at one o'clock in the afternoon. He has plenty of time to get home. But he took Jesus at his word. Jesus said, your son's healed at this very hour. Go your way. Well, he doesn't go his way. He stays and he waits. And that calm faith allows him, rooting his faith in the word of Jesus, he doesn't have to run home and confirm it and be anxious about it. He trusts just from the word. I love that. Yesterday, your son was healed. Let me put this on the screen so you remember this. True faith rests in the calm assurance that what God has said will come to pass. True faith rests in that calm assurance that what God has said will come to pass. I'm not placing my faith in my church tradition or in my family's faith. I'm going to rest in the fact that what God has spoken will come to pass. Would that you and I have that type of faith in God's word. You see, so often we misplace our faith in things, and we even pray for faith, like the disciples. Lord, give me more faith. Please show me what to place my faith in, Lord. And he's like, here it is. I've given it to you. Open it. It's right there. D.L. Moody, I love this. He says, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not seem to come. One day I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, now faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I had closed my Bible and prayed for faith. Now I opened my Bible and began to study and faith has been growing ever since. Church, faith doesn't come by seeing Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What's your basis of faith? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and his word? As we close, I want to invite James and our band forward to close us in song. Go ahead and close your Bibles. Get settled.
going to wrap up and uh, close in a time of song this morning. Jesus is, and today we want to emphasize, he is the healer. And you and I this morning have a choice when it comes to faith or unbelief. And so you may be here this morning or listening, and you're only here because of someone else's testimony. Maybe you were invited by a parent, invited by a friend. I wonder how many middle or high school students are in that camp. I've never really trusted Christ, but I'm banking on my parents' testimony. I'm not gonna believe because I know Jesus, but because mom and dad do. Wouldn't today be amazing if today you, for the first time, placed your own faith in Jesus as a young person and said, today's the day I wanna know Christ. And that tonight, you'd come back at our baptism out at the beach and be baptized as a new believer. How awesome would that be? Placing your own faith in Jesus. You may be here and you don't believe yet. You're still decimated by the deceit of unbelief, bound up in a lack of faith, and you're trusting something other than Christ. It's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't believe. Maybe you need to see a miracle before you trust it. And so you're looking for the flesh instead of the word that became flesh. Missing the landmark for the signs that point to it. But see, I want us to seek to be the man who took Christ at his word. See, like him, we too come to Christ with our broken condition. And though the world would look at us and say, that person's prestigious, the world will offer all that it has. See, because of the effect of sin, we like this man are reduced to a state of desperation and hopelessness. And so we come to Christ, the son who is brought to death. And here's this man with a son who is brought to death. He comes to the son who would one day be brought to death. And we come to Christ with our torment, with our agony, with our need. And he speaks a sure word to us. And he says, do you really believe? Will you really trust me? Or do you need to see something? And then he speaks words of salvation and hope and healing. And so we bring our needs, our requests, not to the world, not to Herod, but to Jesus, who alone can save, who alone can heal. And what do we get? We don't receive a rebuke, we receive a reward. See, this man didn't conjure up Jesus' healing by money, by good deeds. He did nothing to receive it. He asked, and it was granted to him. What is the basis of your faith today? Is it the word of God, or is it something less? My pastor's challenge for us this morning is simply this on the screen. Would you take time this week to open up the Bible, to read and believe the promises of God? Would you do that this week? Say, Lord, help me to believe. Help my unbelief. I want to grow in my knowledge of you. Help me. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.